You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to page 839 if you're reaching in the seats in front of you. If you brought your Bible or you have your app, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to be. And I just want to remind you, as you're turning there, that this book that we're studying from is an ancient book. There's no other book that is as originally manuscript, uh, professionally uh, testified to like this book. It is an amazing book. And, And while we have manuscripts from old ancient documents, nothing compares to this book. Nothing compares to this book also with the claims that this book makes. It claims to be the very words written by the God of the universe. It claims to have the words that point us to eternal life. It claims to provide everyone in every generation everything that we need for life and godliness. That's an amazing book. And yet it's a book that has tremendous gaps between us in the 21st century and the time of the writing, the the languages, the historical context are gaps that we have to work to be able to bridge. And one of those gaps is the geography gap. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be studying some passages in Mark that provide a backdrop of the Sea of Galilee. And most of you have not been to the Sea of Galilee. And so I want to cue up a video that will actually just give us three or four minutes to be able to bridge that geographical gap to just Let us understand what the Sea of Galilee is and the significance of it. In all of the world, there isn't a body of water that captures the imagination for a believer more than the Sea of Galilee. Along its shores, the majority of Jesus' ministry occurred. The Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, or the Lake of Gennesaret, is fed mostly by the Jordan River and is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. At almost 700 feet below sea level, it is second only to the Dead Sea, which is a saltwater lake. This harp-shaped lake lies along the ancient trade route, the Via Maris. Travelers from the northern kingdoms on their way to Egypt would have loved passing through the Galilee on their long journeys. It is unspeakably beautiful. The first century historian Flavius Josephus said of the area, one may call this place the ambition of nature. Into all this lush beauty came Jesus, the Sea of Galilee being the major backdrop for his ministry. From these shores, Jesus called to Simon, Andrew, John, and James, who left their trade as fishermen to become disciples. As beautiful as the Sea of Galilee is, it can quickly be transformed into a violent tempest. Winds funnel through the east-west-aligned Galilee hill country and stir up the waters, quickly causing a tornado effect. More violent are the winds that come off the hills of the Golan Heights to the northeast. Trapped in this basin, the winds could be deadly to fishermen. 
As a result, the ancients believed that the demons of hell lived beneath the lake and stirred it up against those who were on it at will. In the Gospels, we find Jesus asleep in a boat when one of these storms came in. As the waves threatened to capsize the craft, his disciples were terrified. They woke Jesus in a panic. As he sat up, he spoke directly to the storm. Quiet, be still. The storm calmed. His disciples were amazed. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him, they said. In another episode, Jesus had sent the disciples across the lake so that he could have some time alone to pray. Another storm arose, and Jesus came to them, walking on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Another miracle of Jesus directly connected to the Sea of Galilee itself happened on the eastern side of the lake. Jesus had gone there by boat to minister when he was greeted by a man with a legion of demons inside him. Jesus cast the demons out into a herd of nearby pigs. They immediately ran down the side of a steep embankment and into the lake where they drowned. Today, the Sea of Galilee is just as beautiful as it was in the first century. Its hills and valleys remain the same. Into this tranquil and sometimes stormy setting came Jesus, teaching of the kingdom of God, healing the brokenhearted, setting the captives free, and calming the storms we face in our lives, as he continues to do to this day. Well, I hope that captures just a little bit the beauty and the majesty, but also the danger of the Sea of Galilee. Just a couple of points before we dive into God's Word. Number one, I believe the reason why Jesus used this Sea of Galilee backdrop is to provide a contrast, because in Israel, it is such an arid and dry climate that the majority of Israel is browns and grays and and drab colors, but the contrast between the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee to all of the rest of Israel is significant. And I think what he was doing is, as he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, which is going to be a return to the Garden of Eden, he was contrasting the, the conflict and the corruption since the Garden of Eden, since Genesis 3, with what the kingdom would represent. And I love that imagery. We'll actually see it in the text this morning. But I also want us to be able to see that what Jesus offers to us is a contrast to what we provide for ourselves, the fleshly desires that we have, the chaos that is our minds and and what we want and what we think will satisfy. And that will be vividly put on display through the miracle that Jesus provides in this passage. And you know, I think if you're a farmer, you see this almost every day, but just as human beings, we are reminded of the fact that it is the weather that reminds us most vividly that we are not in control, isn't it? It's the weather that reminds us that there is someone else we know, the God of Scripture, who is controlling all of life's events, and that will be put magnificently on display this morning. Let me read our text, and then we'll dive in together. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. 
On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, or the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. The big idea of our passage is in your notes, and that is that every storm is an opportunity to reveal and strengthen true faith in the true Savior. And so maybe you've heard this passage preached before. Maybe you've studied it before. Maybe you want to race ahead by seeing the storm that is present in this passage and apply it to some experience you've had in your life. But let's bridge the gap by going back to the context of Scripture. And as we do, what I contend is that the vista of Christ that will be provided will remind us that in our mundane times, in the times in our lives where we want to run away from whatever our circumstances are, in the times where our lessons that we learned shame us because we should know better, Christ and his gospel is the great opportunity that is presented. Number one, remember this, that every moment is to be seen as a great opportunity. See every moment in your life as a great opportunity. It says in verse 35, on that day, and what Mark is intending to do is let us know that the events of chapter 3 and chapter 4 have all occurred on a 24-hour day. And this is pretty significant. Remember back at chapter 3, Jesus had called the disciples to himself. The uh, family members of his from Nazareth had made their way to Capernaum with the full purpose of bringing him back to Nazareth, taking him off of this crazy ministry progression that he was on, and the crowds were swelling so greatly that he was not even able to eat. And in this 24-hour day, the scribes came from Jerusalem, the official theologians from Jerusalem, and they publicly declared that all of this that Jesus was doing was not on behalf of or in the power of the Holy Spirit, which would have fulfilled Isaiah 11.1 and Isaiah 61.1. It was not that, the scribes said. They said, instead, this is Jesus working on behalf of Satan or Beelzebub. Add to all of this the swelling crowd that caused Jesus to have to get into a boat, to go out on the water, to be able to teach through parables. This has been an incredible 24-hour day. But it's also been a day of the mundane, a, a day of the typical Look what it says. It says that Jesus said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. Jesus, at the end of a long, busy day, just like you and I do, at the end of a long week on a Friday, we often want to get away, don't we? 
We often want to have a movie night. We often want to go out to eat. We want to get away from the grind of the daily and weekly routine, and that's what Jesus is doing. It would be a five-mile journey to cross the Sea of Galilee at this point. Would have given them an opportunity to relax, a time to decompress. He was actually going to be headed to a primarily Gentile region of Israel, which is going to be interesting, and we'll unpack that in our next passage. It says he got in that boat. That boat has been present back in chapter 3, verse 9, as Jesus said, make sure the boat is available as the crowd was pressing in. It was present at the beginning of chapter 4 when Jesus got into this boat to be able to get away from the crowd so that he could preach. He gets into this boat, which was a boat that would allow for about 14 to 15 people. In fact, a boat like this was actually unearthed near this spot, near Capernaum. It's a boat that allows us in the 21st century to be able to get a sense for what the boats were like then. It was about a a four feet deep hole. It was pretty long, pretty wide, so that again, 15 people could make their way in it. There would be one pole in the middle. There would be a sail that would allow them to be able to use the wind that would come up over the Sea of Galilee to be able to make way, but they would also need to row. And so this was the boat that Jesus got in that would carry him and his disciples across to the other side. But it also says in verse 36 that there were other boats with him. Now, don't you wish that we would have had more information about these boats? I mean, especially when you know, because I've already read it, the storm that comes up. I would have wanted to know what happened to these boats. But Mark simply provides the information with no additional detail, I think for this reason, to let us see that for that original group, for the the people in this story, this was business as usual. Friends, there's a lot of things that we do in our lives that is business as usual, isn't there? In fact, let me read you some statistics. I I don't know how valid these statistics are, but for those of you who shave your legs, which hopefully that's only women, The shaving of your legs, if you put all of those moments together, will comprise over two months of your life. When you decide what you want to wear in the morning, or you consult your wife like I do, that will comprise four months of your life. Looking at social media, over a year of your life. Stuck in traffic, three months. Eating, drinking, three plus years going to meetings over a year of your life, complaining seven-plus months, some of you more than that, crying 30 hours, and laundry two to eight months. (laughs) Friends, the point in sharing this with you is there are a lot of activities that we kind of do in autopilot, don't we? A lot of activities that are just part of our daily lives, part of our weekly lives. When we look back on the 70 plus years of a a normal lifespan, we see that these normal daily routines fill up a lot of our lives. I love what John Piper says. He says this, not one millisecond of your life is a time where God turns away from doing you good. Even though terrible things happen to you. 
And I want you to remember this because I think that's why Mark provides this information. Is that in those mundane moments of your life are also great opportunities. You see, if we don't buy into this, if we don't buy into the fact that every millisecond of your life is a great opportunity for the gospel, if we just set our lives on autopilot and we're doing all of these things that comprise so much of our lifespan and we, we take the mundane without having eyes to see it, there's two things that could happen. Number one, there's danger. Would you write that down? When you don't realize that the mundane, everyday moments of your life are great opportunities for the gospel, there is danger. Would you write down Genesis 4, verses 4 through 6? This is the dialogue that, that the God of the universe has with Cain. And Cain is depressed because he knows that God has not accepted his sacrifice. Do you remember that story? Cain, Abel. Two sacrifices. The reason why God did not accept Cain's sacrifice was not because God had given a law to them and said that only I'll accept sacrifices of animals. That hadn't been written yet. The reason why God did not accept the sacrifice of Cain is because when you look at that vocabulary, he was not giving of his best. He was not sacrificing as an expression of worship. He was going through the day-to-day, every-moment activities without taking advantage of that great opportunity. And when God did not accept it, he was depressed. In fact, the, the, the actual Hebrew says that. His face was downcast. He was depressed. This was a weighty moment in his life. And what does God say to him? Be careful in these mundane, everyday moments because sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to rule over you, but you must exercise dominion over it. Beloved, listen, in these everyday moments of our lives, sin is crouching at the door. Now, it might not be a temptation for lust, but it could be. It might just simply be an opportunity for you to spiritually atrophy, to get caught up in the, the river current of the mundane circumstances of life. And beloved, this is a reminder that if you just shrug your shoulders on these everyday moments and don't realize every one of them is an opportunity for you to see the gospel, there is danger. But then second of all, there's also missed opportunities. There's also missed opportunities. You can write down Psalm 118 and verse 24. Every day is designed by God specifically for you. Every opportunity you have eyes to see creation is an opportunity for you to see the handiwork of the creator. And he, he expects, he, he offers to you an opportunity for you to respond in praise and in thanksgiving. Every interaction that you have with another human being is an opportunity for you to see another image bearer, to be able to be the light of the gospel to them. Now I know this can be overwhelming it could be a circumstance where you begin to feel the weight of every moment of every day, but Jesus wants you to be aware and to be ready that every moment is a great opportunity. Number two, lean into every storm as a great opportunity. 
lean into every storm as a great opportunity. So here the disciples are rowing. Here these other people who are interested in the message and ministry of Jesus Christ are rowing. They're, they're on the sea. It's, it's very calm. But all of a sudden a storm whips up. Now we know a little bit about storms, don't we, here in Kansas? I mean, where else in the world could you live where two days ago it was snowing and now it's 75 degrees? So in order for us to be able to understand and bridge the gap, let's just remind ourselves or educate ourselves on what the climate is in Israel. There's basically two times of the year. There's the wet season and there's also the dry season. Some of you get that. The wet season actually has three rainy seasons. There are the early rains. And you see this in the Old Testament. You see this in the Psalms where the Israelites are reflecting on the early rains. The early rains would have taken place from October to November. And these would have been light rains. If you've ever lived in Los Angeles or you've been there, you realize that Los Angeles does not typically have thunderstorms. When it rains there, it's usually a steady rain. It's usually kind of a a mist. And from October to November in Israel, that's what happens. Now, the value of this is that it actually starts to break up the hard ground from the dry season. It actually begins to prepare the ground for plowing and for planting, for uh, the preparation of the harvest. Then there's the winter rains. Most likely, that's the time of the year when Jesus was going across with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, the winter rains are a little bit more violent. They will last for two to three days. They occur about every seven to ten days. If you've ever been to Florida or you've lived in Florida, you know there's a time of the year where you can just set your watch. About three o'clock, the storm's going to come. And so that's the winter rains. These are going to have thunder. These are going to have hail. Sometimes in the upper altitudes, they would produce snow. And then from March to April, there would be the latter rains. These were heavy showers. And then they would get to the dry season where there would be not no showers, but the way that God designed Israel and the land to be watered is through dew. And it's fascinating to read accounts of the dew. You can actually hear about dew in the Psalms as you read what the psalmist reflects on. But the dew would come early in the morning. It would actually water the ground. It would allow for crops to continue to grow, for foliage to continue to grow. But that just gives us a window into the climate of Israel. But, but the Sea of Galilee, as the video provided to us, is, is actually also unique. It's, a, it's the second lowest in terms of sea level uh, sea on the earth. It's fresh water, but it, it's 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by these large mountains, by these gorges, and we'll, we'll learn about that in our next passage when the pigs will go down one of these. But what happens is, as that cold air from the, the upper altitudes rushes down to the warm air of the sea, there would be these massive windstorms that could happen very quickly and unexpectedly. And that's what's happening here. Because remember who is present on this boat. There were four fishermen, weren't there? Men who would have been experts on the weather. In fact, the rest of the disciples, except for Judas, were all from Galilee. So these disciples are familiar with the sea. They would have understood, as Matthew 16 says, that red sky in morning, sailors take 
Warning, red sky at night, sailors delight. We didn't come up with that in our modern context. So these disciples would have been prepared for a weather storm coming out of the west or coming from the north, but this is one that would have come off of the Golan Heights, like the video talked about. These would have happened very quickly. They would have happened very violently. And so now, with that background, we can appreciate what Mark writes. And in fact, let me just read the tenses of the verbs that Mark writes. He says, a storm is coming up. The waves were breaking. The boat is already being filled. But he was sleeping. They are awakening him and are saying to him, do you not care that we are perishing? The imagery there is is very intentional by Mark. He's wanting us to to feel the significance of the details that he's describing. This is a massive storm with likely 20 to 30-foot waves that were breaking in to this four-foot-deep boat, and these veteran Galileans are freaking out. The timing isn't great, Lord. And what do I mean by that? If you have families where there are multiple kids, you can probably relate that the baby gets the best treatment. In our family, we've had that accusation against our youngest daughter, Macy. We laugh about it, but the reason why the baby usually gets different treatment is because the bigs, which we call Mallory and Meg, they're further down the field, they're more experienced. They've been through all of the instruction that we've had to bring them up to. And so we have different expectations of them than we do baby Macy. She's 11, so she's not a baby anymore. But but, but the reason for that is because our bigs are more mature. Our bigs have been through life. Our bigs can handle those higher expectations. And don't you think the same should apply to Christianity and the gospel? I mean, don't you think that God would make it easier for early Christians, for new Christians? And that's what these disciples were. I mean, remember, these disciples had to have Jesus take them aside after the parables and instruct them and explain this stuff to them. And yet he puts them intentionally and sovereignly in a situation where their life is threatened. It doesn't make sense from a human standpoint, but it makes total sense when we're looking at things with gospel lenses. Because the contrast is found here in these verses. The disciples, these veterans, are panicking, and Jesus is what? What does it say in the text? He's sleeping. I mean, that is incredible. Jesus is sleeping. Now, I think that does one thing for us as it reminds us of his humanity. Jesus was the one who was teaching. Jesus was the one who was healing. If you've ever spoken in front of people, if you've ever preached in front of people, you know that it takes a lot out of you. And so in the Terrell household, typically on Sunday afternoons, we crash. But this is even more. Jesus was doing this over most of a 24-hour period. And so Jesus is exhausted. But there's a, there's a second purpose of Jesus sleeping. And that is the contrast between him and the disciples. You see, Jesus has a settled confidence in his Father. The disciples 
haven't gotten there yet. In Matthew 8, 25, the parallel passage in Matthew, the disciples yell out, save us. Here the wording is a little different. Now, it's interesting because most likely it was Peter who was dictating this gospel to Mark. And so I think that Peter wanted it to be worded this specific way because he wanted the truth that he was trying to explain to come across. Listen to what literally the question that is found here in Mark says. Literally it says, how can you sleep? Is there no concern in your hearts for us? You know what's interesting about that question? Whose life was also threatened by the storm? Jesus. But even in the Matthew account, even in the Mark account, the focus of the disciples is, would you write this down? Self-preservation. And beloved, I contend that in the Christian life, most of our problems come when our first priority is self-preservation. I think that's what Mark, I think that's what Peter is trying to put on display here, is he's trying to remind us that when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to a relationship with Christ, the first priority we have in our lives is not self-preservation. In fact, listen to what Kent Hughes says. He says, without difficulties, trials, stresses, and even failures, we would never grow to be what we we should become. Storms are a part of spiritual growth. I love that. Without trials, without suffering, without persecution, without pain, we would never become what we should become. Storms in the Christian life are part of spiritual growth. And that is what Jesus is going to teach his disciples. And so they're experiencing this physical storm. That's what it was. It was a physical storm. And and immediately, some pastors want to run to, what are the storms in your life? And And we could get there by using the principle that Mark is trying to communicate. But the lesson that Jesus was giving them was not, what are the storms in your life? And guess what? I can solve them for you. That's not the point of this passage. The point of the passage is still to come. And that brings us to number three. But before we get there, just remember this. Lean into every storm, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual in your life, as a great opportunity. And the great opportunity is revealed in number three. Receive every lesson as a great opportunity. Every lesson in your life is intended to be a great opportunity. But for what? For what? You're sitting here today, and most of you are engaging with this sermon. Thank you. Most of you are writing down notes so that you can hopefully solidify what is being taught to move, as Tim said earlier, the learning to living. Praise God. But the lesson that God has for you this morning is not ultimately about you. It's about him. And that's what Jesus is going to reveal as he says what he does to the disciples. 
Now, as you read these two verses, your eyes, like mine, are probably drawn to verse 40, where after this amazing event, after these 20 to 30 foot breakers, after the lives of the disciples were literally threatened and they were panicking, Jesus asks the question in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Um, Jesus, I can help you with that. I, these guys almost died. I mean, the storm was unexpected. It was massive. It had veteran fishermen panicked. That's why they were afraid. But Jesus isn't asking, why did they have fear? He isn't asking, why was there anxiety? Because the word that he uses here is not the typical word. In fact, the word that we will find down in verse 41, the word that Jesus uses here is, why are you so cowardly? Would you write that down? Why are you cowardly? The word in the Greek is very similar to our concept of cowardly. It's one who always runs. One who runs away at nothing. The imagery is, as soon as the boat starts to rock, they want to paddle to the shore. As soon as they hear a noise in the night, they want to call the police. And beloved, this is the imagery that Jesus is critiquing with the disciples, and he's wanting you as a follower of Christ, he's wanting me as a follower of Christ, to see and evaluate our lives. Are we cowardly? When the heat of life begins to raise, when our coworkers begin to criticize or our classmates begin to criticize because we stand up for the gospel or because we might even have a, a Bible at our desk, when we make the effort to get up on Sunday mornings or to go to small group during the week, when, when we tell coaches that, you know what, we're not going to be able to be there for the game because this is Sunday morning, this is church time, and people look at you like, what is wrong with you? When that heat is turned up, how do you respond? Do you run? Are you fearful? Or is there confidence? See, Jesus is critiquing the disciples not because they had a healthy fear of this massive storm, but because it demonstrated that they were cowardly. They had the Son of Man, the creator of the universe, in the back of the boat with them. Jesus had been teaching to them that the kingdom was at hand, that the time had been fulfilled. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of all of these prophecies from the Old Testament. Daniel said, he's going to give, the Father Father is going to give to Jesus the the kingdom that will last forever. And now there's a storm coming up and they're, they're worried about themselves? I love what R.T. France said in his commentary for the Gospel of Mark. He says, one of the marks of a true disciple is responding to crisis with confidence in God. In fact, would you write that down if you could? One of the marks of a true disciple is responding to crisis with a confidence in God. Beloved, listen, that is so important. Because if we just stopped right here, we would miss the full point. I think sometimes in Christianity, we kind of have this pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't even know what bootstraps are. I'm sure somebody, somebody will explain that to me. 
You know, tighten your belt, just suck it up. It's not the point. But the point is, is that in crisis moments, one of the true marks of an authentic disciple of Christ is a confidence in God. Doesn't mean we don't cry. Doesn't mean we don't panic. Doesn't mean we don't reach out for help. But one of the evidences of a true disciple of Christ is that in moments of crisis, we have confidence in God. So Jesus asks them in verse 40, have you still no faith? But what is the faith that Jesus is referring to? Would you turn back to Psalm 107? Have you noticed that the New Testament refers back to the Old Testament constantly? Have you noticed that Jesus expected his disciples to have a a full understanding of the Old Testament? Do you remember in Luke 24 when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples, he he walked them through the Old Testament to point them to understand all of the circumstances that had just taken place with his death and his resurrection. The Old Testament, beloved, is crucial. So that's why from time to time I'll take the time in our study of the Gospel of Mark to go back to the Old Testament when the Old Testament is being referenced to. Listen to Psalm 107 in verse 25. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. Verse 26, their courage melted away in their evil plight. Verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Now, friend, listen, don't don't misunderstand this. This is not the psalmist looking forward in the corridors of time and saying, you know what? There's going to be a little boat on the Sea of Galilee someday. There's going to be some disciples. And you know what? Messiah, the anointed one, is going to be on that boat. That's not what the psalmist was doing. But what the psalmist was doing is saying, guess what? There is a God who controls nature. I'll say it again. I think nature and the forces of nature remind every person of every age how little control we have over life. No human being has or ever will be able to control the forces of nature. But God can. And that's the contrast. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see this in other passages. We see it in Job 38, 8 through 11. We see it in Psalm 65 and verse 5. We see it in Psalm 89, 8 through 9, that it is God who controls the forces of nature. That contrasts him to humanity. And so when Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind... When he says to the sea, peace be still, and it does, there's something different here. And that's what the disciples will see in verse 41. But there's a lesson that the disciples are being taught here that by extension is offered to us, and they still haven't gotten it. I don't know about you, I don't like learning lessons especially ones that expose that I just don't get it yet. One of the most difficult classes I had in seminary was preaching lab. And preaching lab was designed by someone who loves pain. (laughs) And what it was is this little room where seven of us seminoids, 
That's what a seminary student is who thinks they're going to change the world and that they have it all figured out. We were all seminoids. We had our little suits on. We had spent hours preparing our message. And we got up in that little room and preached to those seven students and that one professor and then waited at the end for them to critique us. Now, I'll just tell you that those seven students and I had a, a contract of understanding. You be nice to me. I'll be nice to you, but the professor had not signed that contract. I remember one message in particular, Joshua 24. I preached that bad boy so many times before seminary. That was my sugar stick. And I presented my sugar stick to my professor, and he didn't lick it. (laughs) He broke that thing over and over and over again. But these are the words that just stick in my memory. He said, what about this, Jeff? What about that? And I had no answer. And he said, Jeff, if you're going to stand up and preach and say, thus says the Lord from this book, you leave no stone unturned. And that has resonated in my mind so that every week as I prepare the messages for you, I am leaving no stone unturned. Now, in that moment when I received that criticism, when I Gained that valuable lesson. I did not enjoy it. And in fact, it, it shamed me. And I walked away from that thinking, I will never be able to preach. I am not called to this. I am horrible. I vacuum. I suck. That's the way that I say vacuum. <laughs> but you know, it's the lessons of life that are great opportunities. And I think sometimes we we want to approach life, we want to approach scripture, we want to approach Christianity as though there are no lessons for us to learn, as though we've got it all figured out, as though we are all buttoned up so that when we walk in on a Sunday morning, we put on the face to show everybody that we have it all together. We live a social media Christianity. You know what social media is, right? It's an opportunity to put your best face forward. But beloved, every lesson in life is an opportunity. It's a great opportunity. And here is the lesson that Jesus was teaching them. Grow in your confidence in God's character. Would you write that down? Grow in your confidence in God's character. Every lesson of life, every storm that you experience is intended to grow you in your confidence in God's character. We were actually discussing this. I can't remember the context, but someone this last week, we we were talking about the love of God. And when you look around at all that is happening in life, when you look at the headlines, when you look at the the shootings that are happening, when you look at the, the mental illness that is happening, when you look at the suicide rate that continues to grow, it is easy for us to say, how could a loving God? The problem with that question is that we bring to that question our definitions of love, our definitions of God. And what I want you to see is that in these headlines, in these mass shootings, in the mental illnesses, in the suicide rate increasing, there are lessons for us to learn about God of Scripture and humanity and how Scripture defines it. So, beloved, every lesson of life is a great opportunity. So let me give you four opportunities for the lesson that you have in this message and every message 
And every time God bends your ear to teach you something, number one, gain accurate knowledge. Gain accurate knowledge. And accuracy is defined by Scripture. And always remember this, Scripture interprets Scripture. We can make one verse or one passage mean whatever we want it to mean. Romans 9 through 11, for example. That is like the black hole of theology. And yet it is vivid and it is brilliant if we take Romans 9 through 11 in light of all of Scripture and let Scripture interpret Scripture. But accurate knowledge is where we begin, but then, number two, we get to a place of true understanding. You see, it's not enough for us to just be aware of and understand and see the facts. We have to understand how they all fit together. That's theology. How does Romans 9 through 11 fit from Genesis to Revelation? How does election fit in salvation, in Israel, in the church? We look at it in light of all of Scripture and understand how it all connects to each other. That takes time. In fact, listen to this. It takes a lifetime. None of us will ever arrive at a place where we've got it all figured out. And so what that does is it keeps us motivated, doesn't it? We have accurate knowledge that must lead then to true understanding that, number three, evokes wonder and worship. Listen, so many Christians who love deep theology and love scripture stop at number two. And they get to a place where they begin to celebrate the fact that they can understand Romans 9 through 11. That they can understand passages like Hebrews 6. That they can understand these things and they start to feel good about themselves. But it doesn't elicit within them an awe and a wonder of the God of the universe. Beloved, we must have accurate knowledge that moves to true understanding, but we must then move it to an awe and a wonder and a worship, which then leads to number four. That overflows in the confidence in God's character. It's what it does. The deeper you get in your knowledge of God, the more it naturally produces delight, the more it naturally produces wonder. And and when wonder occurs, no matter what your circumstances are, you can say with Paul, I have learned that in every circumstance, I can have joy, I can be content. Why? Because it is a settled confidence in God and his character that eclipses and supersedes your circumstances. This is the lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples. So that physical storm on that small boat was intended to grow the disciples' confidence in God. Which leads to number four. Evaluate your every response as a great opportunity. Evaluate your every response as a great opportunity. It says in verse 41, they were filled with great fear. The the word great fear there is phobio, or phobeo, or phobos, which we get the word phobia. This is a genuine fear, but it is also a genuine awe. And and you know how I've said that the, the, the audience that Mark was writing to was likely very familiar with the Jewish scriptures, very familiar with Jewish culture. And so I, I submit to you that I, I think these original audience was thinking of another story in the Old Testament, 
of a man who was asleep on a boat when a big storm arose. He was awakened by the sailors and asked to contribute to their salvation. Do you remember who that was? It was Jonah. And I think Mark and Peter had that story in mind when they crafted this with the words that they did. Because do you remember what happened after the sailors threw Jonah in the water and the storm calmed? It says that the sailors were filled with fear. But beloved, I would submit to you that what you do in response to that fear will show whether that fear is negative or positive. And what the sailors did in Job, Jonah 1.16 is they offered up sacrifice and they worshipped. That demonstrated that their fear was positive. And what the disciples do here in their question is demonstrate that their fear was positive. They said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And I think they were alluding to Psalm 107. But see, friends, as Mark unfolds, we see that the disciples at this point did not arrive, did they? They might have arrived at the shore of the other side of Galilee, but they had not arrived in a complete understanding and a complete confidence in God. And isn't that an encouragement? That the disciples who would write the pages of Scripture still didn't get it. In fact, in Mark 6, they will have a similar storm, and they still panic. They still don't get it. Thank God for the disciples. Amen? But this is intended to remind us that when we experience circumstances that are tough, that are unfair, that are unjust, just like Jesus asked the disciples, I'm asking you and I'm asking me, what is your and my response? 